So let's uh, take a moment and just pray. Father, it is very true that your love is deep for us. So deep that you sent your son to die in our place. God, we pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted here in this message this morning. And that you would show us how really dependent we are on you. I admit, God, that there's a lot of times in my life where I forget just how dependent I am on Christ. And I admit right now, Lord, that I need you. We all need you, God. So, Lord, please come. Be with me now as I preach from your word. And we pray, God, that this service, that this time, would glorify your name. And it's in the name of Christ that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Praying is a good thing for us to do often. And speaking of prayer, the text that we'll be looking at today in Psalm 142 is actually a prayer that was written by David. So that leads me to where I want to start off this morning by doing something that we don't typically do, but I want to take just a quick poll in the room, just a brief sur survey here, all right? I know this is unusual, it's unexpected, I get that, uh, but please just bear with me, all right? So uh, hopefully this will go the way I think it will. Uh, and if not, we'll just we'll trust God with it. So, uh, so I want you to raise your hand if you think that praying to God is a good thing and it's important for us to do every day. Raise your hand. Very good. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Now, now, I want you to raise your hand that if you think you pray consistently enough every single day. I mean, you are like a prayer champion. Hashtag prayer champ. That's you. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Some of the kids are raising their hands. But you see what happened there, right? You see what happened there. Now, why is it that we all agree that prayer is a vital element to the Christian life, but yet we also acknowledge the fact that we just don't pray enough? Right? There are times when we don't treat prayer as important as it really is. And we even have various places in the Bible that tell us that Christians should, should pray often, that Christians should pray a lot. 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God wants you to pray to him often. Right? Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Even Martin Luther said this once about prayer. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So think about that for a moment. Now let me be clear. Just because you don't pray like you should doesn't mean that you have somehow managed to lose your salvation and you're no longer a Christian. Okay, definitely not the case. But if you were to tell me that you never pray. I would want to have an extended conversation with you as your pastor to try to figure that out, right? But there 
but there are also times when we do pray a lot, like today. Some of, uh, some of you were here this morning. We prayed while the musicians rehearsed. Then we prayed again during the pre-service meeting, that we, uh, as we usually do when we go over the order of service on Sunday mornings. And we pray throughout the service. Each week we have a different prayer. You know, we have a prayer of praise, a prayer of confession, a prayer of thanksgiving. Today Justin did a pastoral prayer. So sure, we pray. We like to pray on Sunday mornings. But what about later today or tomorrow or on Tuesday when you're in the midst of an argument with your spouse or when your electricity goes out because of all the snow and the power company tells you it's not going to be on for, you know, a couple more days? Is prayer on your mind in those moments? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Regardless, I'm sure that we can all agree that there is a lot of room for improvement in our prayer lives. But why is that? Why do we neglect to do something we know is so good for us and it's needed every day? Why do we neglect that? Here's a simple answer to why we don't pray as much as we should. Because most of the time throughout our day, throughout our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, we just don't think we're that dependent on God. You know, we make up excuses like, I just don't have time to pray right now, or I'll pray later. But I think if we really understood just how dependent we are on God every day, it would have a huge impact on how often we pray and even the content of our prayers. You see, human beings were created and designed to be dependent on God. Right? We need oxygen to breathe, so where does that come from? Who provides that? We need food to eat and water to drink. Who provides that? Ultimately, who provides that for you every day? God does. So with that understanding that we were created as dependent creatures, why are there times when we forget or even deny that? Why do we suppress the truth about our dependency on God? Well, we are fallen people who think and live in such a way that we believe that we don't need God. This goes for Believers at times and unbelievers. Christians tend to forget and sort or sometimes refuse to acknowledge their need and dependency on God. Now, if we're, we're sitting, if I were sitting out there in those seats and I heard whoever was up here telling me that, my first thought would be, I realize, you know, I, I, I think I really do realize how much I need God every day and how dependent I am on, on him for everything. Right? I, I would think that. You know, you may know that up here, but the opposite of our dependency on God is, is displayed in our lives all the time, right? We boast in our accomplishments. I did that. That was all me. We pride ourselves on how well we're doing in life generally, right? We even criticize and gossip about other people who aren't doing so well. And even when we do hit hard times, we go to other things for relief. We don't go to God. We isolate. We indulge our sinful desires, whether it be drug abuse or alcohol abuse or shopping or sexual sin or how we deceive and manipulate other people just to, to get what we want, to fix our problem. We go to everything else other than going to the only one who, can truly who we can truly depend on all the time in every circumstance. The one who has our lives in his hands. 
And with today's message, that theme is exactly where we're going. That is our destination and the direction we're going to take to get there. That, di- that direction is laid out through this psalm, Psalm 142. So let's go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a few, mem- few moments excuse me, to flip to Psalm 142. And the verses will also be on the screen. I'll go ahead and read the text for us, starting with the heading before verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to take some time to dig in to the psalm a little deeper and examine it a little more closely. And with doing that, it's always helpful to know the background or the occasion that prompted uh, the author to write it, uh, so which we have with this particular psalm. So I'll start again with the heading. As we go through the entire message, my aim will be to bring out some observations as we talk about these verses on who God is and why this matters for us in our lives today. So taking another look at this heading, we see the phrase, a masculine. We've uh, come across that, this word before in some of the other psalms that have been preached. We've seen it before, and it's one of those Hebrew words which nobody seems to know exactly what it means. Right? Some think it could be simply a musical term, or others uh, think it might be a word that means an instructive song or a teaching poem. Um, either way, it doesn't really affect the content of the passage. And then next, we have the name of the author who penned this psalm right there, where it says, Of David. A mascal of David. Now, I know throughout this series in the Psalms, Justin and I both have touched on who this man, David, was. Real brief, God brought this man from watching over his family's sheep to a seasoned and revered warrior to a well-respected king over God's own people. But let's not forget that David was also a man, a fallen human being born in a state of sin and misery. It's not like he was any different from who we are today in 2018. If you take a moment to consider David's life from one end to the other, you'll find that he had moments of greatness contrasted with seasons of misery and 
despair. Justin touched on this earlier. And this psalm here tells us exactly what was going on. And it tells us that this was a season where David was experiencing misery and despair. It gives us his thoughts, the emotions he was feeling, even where he was physically located, right there in the heading, when he was in the cave. Now, typically, people don't go to caves when things are great, right? Things are pretty bad. Well, it depends. If that's your hobby, then okay, I get it. But uh, for the rest of us, it's not a typical thing a person would do when uh, life's great. Now, what cave is being referred to here? Well, there are a few times in the book of 1 Samuel where it was recorded that David sought refuge from his enemies by hiding in caves. Uh, 1 Samuel 22, which our brother Stephen McGee read a portion of earlier, talks about David fleeing from King Saul and escaping to the cave of Adullam where he spent some time before others were gathered to him. And then a few chapters later, 1 Samuel 24, we read about another cave that was located in a place called En Gedi. Right? So this, if you remember, this is where Saul is trying to track down David, but he has no clue where he is. And he unintentionally ends up in the same cave where David is hiding. Right? So David is then presented with an opportunity to kill Saul. But instead, he decides to spare Saul's life. So which of these two caves would fit the context of this passage? One, Psalm 142. Well, most lean towards the cave of Adullam and 1 Samuel 22, because the, the content here seems to describe that David was in isolation. It seems like he's by himself. But then again, there are times when people feel isolated, even when they're surrounded by everyone. Either way, as we read, just remember David's in a cave, and things are really bad right now. That's important to remember. And one more thing to note, probably the most important thing to note with this heading is that last phrase, a prayer. We've already thought about the subject of prayer this morning and how it's a fundamental aspect of the Christian life. We even affirmed the Lord's prayer from the screen earlier. Prayer is a good thing to do, and we should do it often. That's already been said. And we can define what a prayer is simply stated by saying this, a prayer is communication with God. And throughout this message, I plan on spending some more time speaking on the doctrine of prayer as it comes up. So now that we've established some context, let's move into the first three verses of Psalm 142. I'll go ahead and read them again. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy. To the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. You know, a great question to always ask yourself when you read your Bible is this one right here. What does this particular passage Teach me about God. What does this text say about who God is? Right? When my family and I are having our family Bible time, that is a question that my wife and I ask our children. Right? What is God telling you 
about himself here in this particular passage? Well, the answer to that question is the first observation I want us to consider this morning, uh, and that is this beautiful truth about God. God is both powerful and personal. God is both powerful and personal. He is the most powerful being in existence, and he is the most personal being that you could ever know. All right, so where am I getting that from here in this text? Where do I see that? Well, that truth about God is revealed in what David says and, and how he says it. Look back at verse 1 with me. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Okay, so a couple of things to point out here that David is saying. Uh, one, he states the phrase, with my voice, twice. It's important to note, right? Write it down, make a mental note. We'll be coming back to that here in a few. Uh, and along with that, number two, he says, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for mercy to the Lord. So let's think about his tone and his word choice here. He's emotional. He's crying out. He's shouting out loud to God with his voice. He's pleading for mercy. Other Bible translations, instead of I plead for mercy to the Lord, that phrase is rendered, to the Lord I make supplication. But the concept of what he is saying doesn't change because we can define both very uh, similar. Mercy, we can define that as a kindness shown to someone that a person has power over. And then supplication, we can define as an appeal made to someone in power who has authority. Right? So either one fits because David's posture is the same with both phrases. Here we see a man who, at this point in his life, had experienced God's favor and blessing in all kinds of ways. Right? He defended God's people by defeating Goliath, a giant. Saul appointed him as a leader of his army. And he became so victorious in battle that the people began to prefer David more than King Saul. They would cheer. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David knew what it was like to be on top. To be the man that everyone looked up to, to be the man that everybody respected. And yet, here in this psalm, we find him devastated. He's desperate. He's begging God for help. And why does this man David, who knows what it's like to have power and authority, why does he go to God for help? Because he knows that true power and authority over all creation belongs to God and God alone. He is seeking the only one that has the ability to rescue him. Psalm 62, verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, 
and you are exalted as head above all. This is why it can be said that David's posture here teaches that God is powerful. He would only appeal or make supplication to a person who has power and authority over him, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to plead for mercy to someone who can't do anything about what's causing you distress or pain. People that have committed heinous crimes and have been sentenced to death that are on death row don't make an appeal to the prison guard because a corrections officer doesn't have the power nor the authority to change anything. If you're on death row, you plead for mercy and you petition the governor, right, who has the highest authority in the state because he is the one, he or she is the one who can grant you a pardon. Right, so think about how much more power and authority God has. David's posture points us to God's power because he acknowledges his dependence by seeking God through his suffering. And these aren't just some insignificant emotions and, and thoughts that he is expressing to God in silent prayer. Right, he is clearly verbalizing what he is feeling. Right? We know that because twice, again, verse 1, it states, with my voice. Now, I want to mention this so I'm not misunderstood. I, there's nothing wrong with silent prayer to God. We do it here in service sometimes. I do it at home sometimes. Uh, and with that being said, there's also something about praying with your voice out loud to God that is really good for you emotionally and spiritually. Again, sometimes silent prayer is appropriate depending on the circumstances, and it's still communication with God, which is obviously a great thing to do. But when we begin to communicate to God using our voices, it affects us in all kinds of good ways. When we pray out loud, we begin to really engage with our deepest thoughts and our emotions and our concerns and our anxieties and our love for Jesus and our gratitude and the way we long after him and 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 waiting for his return and his greatness and his authority and all that good stuff. That's why we pray out loud here during the worship service, right? Because it's good for my heart to hear what you are saying to God. And it's good for you to hear. It's good for your heart to hear what I'm saying to God. When somebody's praying a prayer of praise, it causes me to praise God with them. When somebody's up here confessing sin to God, it causes me to confess right alongside them. And God's Spirit uses that to establish unity here with us as one body. You know, we pray a lot that God would knit our hearts together. We prayed this this morning. That God would knit our hearts together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we pray that with our voices to Him, God is actively working and moving to make that happen, to bring us into deeper fellowship with him and closer with each other. And there's also great benefit to praying out loud when you're by yourself. Right? That, that's what it appears that David is doing here in this psalm. This type of praying highlights his personal relationship with God. Look back at uh, verse 2 with me. I pour out my complaint 
before him. I tell my trouble before him. Have you ever poured out your complaints and troubles before God? I know I have. And I also know that I don't do it as often as I need to. There are times when we pray, it's like turning on a faucet. Right? We go to God in prayer, and it's just a steady stream of words flowing from our hearts out through our mouths about how we're feeling inside. Right? And then there are times when we just hold back because we don't want to engage with what's bothering us. Right? We keep it bottled up because we, we think maybe that it's not okay to complain with God. Right? Like he'll be surprised or displeased with us if we voice our frustrations to him. But that's not the case at all. Right? The Lord knows and understands your thoughts and your heart better than you do. Right? He wants you to come to him with every affliction, with every trouble, with every complaint. Personal prayer to God is an intimate time of communication with him when we open up to him about everything that's going on in our lives, inside our minds, inside our hearts. We shouldn't hold back. Right? He already knows what's causing us to be depressed or anxious or distressed. And he wants us to pour all of that out to him in prayer. Right? Think about a time when you prayed completely free about how you felt. Right? How angry something or someone made you. Or how anxious you were about whatever was going on in your life. Or maybe you've told God that you felt unloved by him and he just doesn't care. Or doesn't feel like he cares for you. I mean, you just poured it all out. And through that, God was still gracious to you and maybe even gave you some emotional relief temporarily. Right? David here in verse 2 is able to tell God his trouble because he knows God in a personal way. Right? People don't typically tell their deepest, darkest troubles to somebody they don't know or to someone they don't have a relationship with. The fact that God wants us to pray, to have communication with him, demonstrates that he is personal. Right? He's a personal being with whom we can enjoy a close relationship with. And that truth leads us to verse 3 of the psalm. I'll go ahead and read it again. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Let's take some time and think about what David means when he says, when my spirit faints within me. He's talking about times when his soul is downcast, when his innermost self is troubled, burdened, weary. When everything in me is unsettled, when everything in my life is in complete chaos. I'm getting bombarded with struggle after struggle, problem after problem, stress on top of more stress, and my soul is heavy upon me. Right? David doesn't have anything left in him. He's done. He's spent. No strength to keep going. All mental and emotional energy has been used up, exhausted. He's exhausted. He's exhausted with his life and with his circumstances. 
He admits the fact that he is weak. And through that admission, he recognizes how dependent he is on God. See what he writes next in the uh, same sentence there in verse 3. He says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. You know my way. Even when I can't handle what's going on inside me, when the misery of life is just unrelenting, and I've given up because I don't have anything else to give. I'm done. I, when I've been diagnosed with cancer, when, I've, when the company I've worked for for years closes shop and I lose my job, when my marriage is falling apart, when my mother or my father or my children die unexpectedly, when I have nothing left but misery and despairing thoughts and suicide crosses my mind, when I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know the way, Lord, you know my way. God knows your way. Grab on to that truth. Our God knows our way. He knows what's going on in you and around you because he has ordained all things to be carried out according to his sovereign plan. It's his plan. This isn't just reformed flavored theology. This is biblical theology. Proverbs 16, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Psalm 37, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. If you remember the beginning of the book of Joshua, after the death of Moses, God tells Joshua to leave the Israelite nation, about two million people, across the Jordan into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, right? A land already inhabited by other people. And he tells Joshua, he says, every place that the sole of your foot will land on, I have given it to you. Just as I promised to Moses, I will not leave you or forsake you. God will never leave you in your trouble. He's there with you. You have to endure it. You're suffering through it, but he will never forsake you in it. Listen again to what David is saying here in the second part of verse 3. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Even when other people would like nothing more than to see David fail and cheer his downfall, right, by tricking him, deceiving him, whatever the case, still God sees the traps ahead. He knows my way. And if God is leading my way, then I know he will never fail me. Even if I get ensnared for a time and whatever's been laid out in my path, God is with me. You may be in a lonely place in your life right now. I don't know. You know and God knows. You may be feeling lonely like David was feeling in that cave. But if you're a child of God, again, he will never leave you or forsake you. God knows my way because he has established my way. He knows me because he's personal. When my spirit faints within me, he keeps me. 
You know, this observation that God is both powerful and personal points us to the most perfect example of those two truths. The God-man Jesus Christ. Right? Both of those, that God, was, God is powerful and personal, were on full display in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of His Son, Jesus Christ. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knows each and every one of his sheep personally. He knows his people in a personal way. And later on, same chapter, he continues by saying, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. God the Father has given God the Son power and authority over everything. Life, death, even all of creation. That is why we as followers of Christ must not forget how dependent we really are on Jesus. Right? He's the one saving us. He's the one changing us, sanctifying us, renewing our minds. Right? He's the one keeping us saved. He's the one praying for us, interceding for us. He's the one we need to turn to during good seasons and bad ones. Because he knows our way. However, this truth, this comfort, only applies to those who are in Christ. Right? Unfortunately for the unbelieving person who doesn't know Jesus, there, there is no comfort in their affliction. There is no relief. There's only condemnation. So with that said, let's move on to the next two verses in this passage as we take some time to consider the next observation. So we talked about God. God is powerful and personal. This next observation we'll be considering is how God provides refuge for weary souls. How God provides refuge for weary souls. Follow along as I read verses 4 and 5. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Here in verse 4, David explains his trouble. He spells out the reason for his grief. In summary, he feels... Abandoned by people he's isolated from help. He's in danger. There's a lot of fear in what he's saying. He's scared, obviously. He feels like no one looks after him. No one cares for his soul. And that verse also prompts us with a few questions. Why does he feel this way? Why, why does he think there's no refuge for him to go? He's in a cave. A cave physical cave. It provides some type of refuge, escape. 
right? What's causing him to say that no one cares for his soul? Well, first, let's think through the, the first part there, of verse 4, where he says, Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. So to really grasp what David is getting at here, you have to understand the importance of the position that he's referring to. Okay, look to the right, this side, and see, there is no one who takes notice of me. He refers to the right, and more specifically, he means his right, the position of David's right. In the Bible, when, that, when the position of right is mentioned, it usually indicates a position of strength, and also sometimes it means a position of protection. All right, in Exodus, it's mentioned, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Right? And some people today even use the phrase, my right hand man, when talking about a person who is close to them, a person who helps them, who's always with them. So David is saying, look, God, look to my right and see. No one's there. No one takes notice of me. I've got nobody in my corner. They've all left. I'm alone. And then he goes on to mention in the second part of verse 4 that uh, no refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. He's completely out of options. Right? He literally has nowhere to go. No escape. His enemies are closing in, and those who were closest to him have left him. He really believes that no one cares for his life. Now, how does this part of David's prayer right here that we're talking about, how does this part of his prayer apply to us. So think about how human beings go about most of their life priding themselves on how independent they are, boasting in how self-sufficient they are. We all do this in some measure. But when tragedy strikes, when the table's turned, when life goes from good to bad, it's amazing how quickly our attitude changes. Right? Because now we need help. And we want immediate relief from whatever is creating havoc in our lives. Right? We're so self-absorbed sometimes that we'll acknowledge our need for help just as long as it benefits us in some way. And then from the other perspective, when someone comes asking for our help, what do we do? We turn them away. Right? And yes, Christians do this too. I'm not justifying it. I'm just acknowledging it. Now, are there times when we actually do help a brother or sister in need? Absolutely. I've seen it many times here at CBC, and thank you for that. No question about that. But there are also times when we are just really bad at this. We're really bad at helping each other. We tend to think, well, it's their problem, not really my problem. Or we make excuses, I just don't have time to help with this issue right now. But if we were in their position, we would be singing a different tune. God's word clearly tells us to bear one another's burdens and let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And what about this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
right? Jesus commands us to love one another just as he has loved you. But do we live that way? Do we do this perfectly all the time? No. Sometimes we just don't care for the souls of other people. Because this is the human condition, right? You and me, all of us. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with selfishness and pride. We don't care for one another all the time as we should. I'm preaching this just as much to myself as I'm saying it to you, too. I want you to know that. Right? We need to have a humble posture towards God and towards one another. You know, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what prayer to God is all about, right? To take the lower position, to affirm your dependence on God, to confess your weakness and humbly ask him for his help. Charles Spurgeon mentions uh, this in his commentary on, on Psalm 42. He said this, Had David prayed as much in his palace as he did in his cave, he might never have fallen into the act which brought such misery upon his later days. So thank God that my salvation is not tethered to my own performance or works. Thank God that if no one else cares for me, I can trust that Jesus cares for my soul and for the souls of my fellow brothers and sisters. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Right? This is how we know that God cares for our souls. Because God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his only son to die for sinners who rebelled against his rule. So please remember and preach this to yourself often. If you belong to God, if you're a child of God, and there comes a time in your life when you feel that no one cares for you, you got nobody in your corner, no one cares for your soul, I want you to remember that Christ cares so much for your soul that he laid down his life for it. So looking back at the text now in verse 5, I'll read it again. David says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So pay close attention to that word he uses there, refuge. That's, that's one of the best biblical words that describe who God is. Um, as a matter of fact, there are 42 times where that word, refuge, appears in the book of the Psalms. In all the Old Testament writings, that word refuge is seen here in the Psalter more than any other, any other one. Right? It would be safe to say that this was one of David's favorite ways to refer to God. Right? He even uses it twice in this prayer. Verse 4, he says, no refuge remains to me. And then he turns around and he says, you are my refuge in the middle of verse 5. Because of that change in direction, we know that David's not speaking about a tangible refuge where he could escape from the dangers of life. Right? We, know, we know that because he directly states that no refuge remains to me. I have no physical place to go that will protect me from my enemies. So if that's the case, then what's he talking about? What type of refuge does God provide? 
And this is how we get to the second observation here in the song. We're going to look at, we're going to consider God provides refuge for weary souls. How God provides refuge for weary souls. Obviously, David is in pieces emotionally. He's physically drained. He's spiritually weary. Think back to verse 3. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. But how exactly does God provide spiritual refuge? Well, we know because of Adam's sin, the whole world has been plunged into sin and misery, which meant both physical and spiritual death for us and separation from God. Right? God is perfectly righteous and just, so he cannot let our sin go unpunished. And we as humans are so flawed and marred by sin that we can't do anything to atone for it or even reconcile ourselves back to God. So that is a problem that every single person who was brought into this world faces. We are alienated from God and we stand condemned awaiting his wrath against our sin. And we're powerless to change it. So God provided the only solution to our problem. He provided the only refuge for us, the only safe place from his own wrath. By providing his son Jesus as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for the punishment that we deserve. Right? The only refuge for your soul is by faith in Christ Jesus. Trusting that he lived the perfect, obedient life on your behalf, that his righteousness is credited to you. Counting on him, not on yourself, for your salvation. Believing that he personally died an atoning death for your sin. Knowing that he defeated sin, death, and Satan by being raised from the grave and hoping in him with all that is in you because he is alive right now and he's coming back to bring his people home. You see, we're shielded from God's wrath and reconciled to him by fleeing to the most perfect refuge that has ever existed. The rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. So let's draw this message to a close by considering this last truth from this psalm. We've talked about how God is powerful and personal. We've talked about how God provides refuge for weary souls. And now we're going to talk about how God will deliver his people in verses 6 and 7. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So far, we've seen David experience emotional turmoil. He's given up, no one around to help him, nowhere to find safety. And there, in that verse, right here, he's pleading to God to hear his prayer, and he's begging God to deliver him. Look again at verse 7. It says, bring me out of prison. He feels trapped. He prays that God would grant him freedom so that he may give thanks to his name. Because David realizes that he's a prisoner, he also realizes that there is only one person who can set him free from this prison. All right? Notice what he says in the last sentence of verse 7. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. 
He knows who he's praying to. He knows that God is both powerful and personal. He knows that God cares for his soul. He knows that God provides the only refuge, the only real refuge for him. And throughout this prayer, David's poured out his troubles, his complaints, his grief, his agony throughout the majority of this passage. That's what we see. And then what do we find here at the end of this prayer? We find hope. We find hope. And he's not hoping in himself. He's looking forward to a day when God will deliver him from this prison. A day when the righteous will surround him. He knows that God has dealt bountifully with him in the past, and he knows that God will deal bountifully with him again. So in closing, where, where do you stand today with all that's said in this psalm? Has God set you free in Christ from the prison of sin and death? Do you acknowledge your dependency on Jesus for your salvation? Are you looking forward to the day when God will ultimately deliver us from all the suffering in life? Do you remember that this life is not all there is? One day God will wipe away every tear and sorrow will not be anything. It'll be no more. I hope that's the case. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your word and how it shows us who we really are and how dependent we really are on Christ for everything. So Lord, help us to remember that you've done everything to accomplish our salvation, that Christ has died for our sin, that he rose defeating sin and death, that he lived a perfectly obedient life, Lord, and that you credit that righteousness, his righteousness, to us. Guard us against the ways we think, Lord, sometimes when we want to work for our salvation or we want to boast in ourselves. God, I pray that our boast would always be in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, please be with us now as we look towards your table and we remember his sacrifice and as we proclaim his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now we move into our time together around the Lord's table. And uh, just as we consider those observations from Psalm 142,